and what pastors are experiencing is we are broken and weathered and worn, and then the weight of things hit us, the weight of COVID or the weight of whatever. And now, now we're struggling under the weight of that. We're like, I don't want to do this anymore. But the thing is, it, you're not a, you're not, your identity is not pastor. Your identity is person. And if you've been inauthentic, and now the weight of, I told these people for years I was going to save them, and the weight of this is too much. I don't know how to get myself through this. Well, now we're screwed. My name is Timothy Eldred. Today, I talked to my good friend, Kyle Burkholder. Kyle is a pastor in, as he says, a smallest church in Bowling Green, Ohio. In the handful of years I've known Kyle, he has proven to be one of the most honest people I know, so he is a perfect guest for this show. Enjoy the conversation as you listen with an open mind. Welcome to the Authentic Pastor Podcast. Good morning, Kyle Burkholder. Hello, Tim. Dude. It was what May. I only get to see you like once a year. Once is enough. Nobody needs to see me more than once a year. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I could take that all kinds of directions, but now once isn't enough. But I sure look forward to May, uh, the gathering that we do. I've been getting texts already of people going, "Are we locked in on the dates?" And you know, I love that gathering. And um, you're new to that gathering. I'm only two years in, and uh, I was told that it's not a guaranteed re-invitation. So every year, I kind of yeah, you've got to prove yourself. You got to prove yourself year after year to get you know my (laughs) invite back. But no, um, it's such an authentic place. No pun intended for our podcast today, but it really is an authentic gathering of you know fifteen twenty of us that do life together in ministry who shared affinity, not just for Christ and the kingdom, but now for one another. And so, you know, when we, when we were uh, introduced in Israel of all places, um, that became a bond, dude, a real bond. Yeah. I, Um, I mean, I'd never experienced anything like Israel, but never, I mean, Colorado was actually more surprising to me. I never experienced anything like that. And it took me it took me a couple of months to even process what it was that I experienced with an authentic group of of kind of laid bare people. So that was it's it's a huge blessing, but it's just something I didn't didn't know existed. That's an interesting phrase, laid bare people. I don't think I've ever used that phrase. Um, what's that mean, laid bare people? Well, pretense was gone. You, you, I mean, I walked into a room where everybody knew each other. Yeah. at a level that I hadn't experienced. And so ever there nobody had to pretend to be something they weren't because everybody already knew everybody else's junk. So they're picking up on 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 stories that had kind of already started and I walked in to the I mean it's kind of the middle of a it's like going to a family reunion and you you're not in the family and you go wait a minute what did I get into? Um so like I said it took me a while to go was that like was that okay? Because it was just so different to have people fully transparently um, showing life. And it wasn't like, a, it wasn't like people were bleeding all over each other just to do it. It was just like, no, this is the reality of my existence. And again, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. It's not manufactured or contrived. Mm. Um, no. you know, I've been doing it for 10 years and I would say for the majority of us, maybe 50%, but you know, we started, we've done doing life together for some of us 20 plus years. 
So this was just an extension of what we already do. I mean, a lot of us speak at events and um, have done tour things and green room things and stuff like that together at these national events where you're always on, right? Mm-hmm. And um, even in the green room where you can be yourself, you're on, um, which is understandable and yet disappointing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you see people who do are laid bare in that kind of setting, a green room preparatory setting, and all of a sudden they change behind that microphone 50 feet away Hmm. um, with an audience. And um, I don't want to criticize that too much. But I've become really uncomfortable with that Hmm. because what we're talking about laid bare people should happen, especially in faith and Christianity, should happen every encounter we have with people, you know, especially on Sunday morning. And um, which takes me to your current role. So, you know, we know each other well, not well enough, you know, not well enough. Working on it. We're working on it. And um, it's like anything else, it's a work in progress, getting to really get deep beneath the skin of each other. And um, I think as where trust is developed, and I mean, you and I really haven't had to to build trust. We just gave each other trust. I think that's true. That's true for me. Um, You know, put words in your mouth, like that elder guy, I'm not sure I trust him yet. But you serve a local church, so just you know, I, like I said, I know you, but people who are listening don't know you. So give me the, give me the thirty thousand foot view a little bit, and then drill down a little bit to who Kyle, Kyle Burkholder is and the role that you play in this world. Um, there's multiple roles, right? And so I'm just, I don't want to, I don't want to like highlight just the pastoral role because you're so much more than that. So who's Kyle Burkholder, man? What do you do? Yeah, that's a. That's a better question. Um, cause I'm a pastor. I'm a, I'm a pastor in Bowling Green, Ohio of a, a smallish church, um, that sometimes tries to get bigger. And, um, if we do it right, tends to get smaller again. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm, a, uh, I was out, I was out at a, a retreat uh, a week or two ago and I was asking if I could leave early. It was, you know, the church is putting on the retreat, but I've, I've delegated it out. So I'm trying to submit to these guys that are running it. And, I was like, can we finish earlier though? And and I was checking my my sort of motivation. And as much as I liked hanging out with all these dudes, I really just like I was like, I want to get back to my family. So I got a, a wife I like and I got thirteen and ten year old girls that I like and I got this little sweet house and I, I just kind of feel like I live in Mayberry and I, I get to do a thing I love to do. Um and I get to love people. And it, it all sounds kinda every time I say it, I, I find myself cynical from the other person's point of view. So, you know, I came from a, a mini mega church in Texas. I was a teaching pastor. It was very much the world you're talking about that there's a green room and then there's a public persona and, uh, you know, no, no shade on, on that church, but it was just the, the role I played felt inauthentic. And so I, I got to make this, this life move where I uh, didn't have to reinvent myself, but I could just be myself. And, and so I, I lead a really simple uh, existence. I drive 1.3 miles to work every day. Sometimes I walk. Um, 
I go home, I cook dinner, hang out with my kids. Um, and so, so I'm not real interesting in the, uh, in the globetrotting sense, but in, in the uh, who are you and what do you do, uh, I try to love really hyper-local people. We're, I always tell our church we're a hyper-local church. Um, and that we just have a, we got a, a zip, one zip code. That's all. I mean, that's about what we reach. And if we do that really well, we did our job. And so that's kind of where I'm at. That's kind of what I'm chasing, trying to be smaller in, in the world. That's kind of the, the mantra I live by, smaller and slower and lesser and lower. And I think that's the Jesus life, but I don't, you know, I may change Smaller and slower and lesser and lower. Yeah. That's, that's, those are the, that's just, it just runs through my head all day. How do I get smaller? Um, he must become greater. I must become lesser. Um, lower is a posture. You know, I'm not, I'm not lording over anything. I got to be lower, washing feet kind of thing. What's the one I'm missing? Small, slower. Jesus was a two mile an hour ministry. He just, he, there was, he didn't have a, he didn't have Uber. He didn't get on a plane. He was a two mile an hour ministry. And you and I, when we were in Israel together, you see, and you go, oh, okay, well, he's in the backwoods, nowhere. Like he's in the, he's not even in the important places in the nowhere villages. He's in the nowhere villages and the back alleys of the nowhere villages. So I'm like, I could go slower and maybe I find more, more Jesus there. That's interesting because that's clearly a countercultural, I think it's countercultural posture Hmm. than what we see, what we've been taught, right? Go into all the world and make disciples. And that becomes, I mean, I'm not disregarding the great, you know, commission. But if we're not careful, that becomes our motivation. And it's not the great commission that becomes our motivation. It's the influence we have over the world. I want to make a significant, huge change. I want to be written down in the history books. Mm-hmm. I've done that in 30 years. I've done that. I still struggle with that. Even with this authentic pastor project, I have to be careful that I don't think, well, I want to make a huge change that changes pastors' lives, that changes the church, that changes the world. And um, I can be I can be very guilty of that. I've done that in my youth ministry work. You know, um, I'm really quick to say I've spoken X amount of countries. You see how I didn't do that right there? I just put an X instead of like the real number because um, I want to impress you. You know, I put that in my bio. I say that in intros to podcast. And why do I do that? I, I do that because I want you to think I am somebody. Hmm. because maybe I'm not comfortable with the somebody I am. Yeah. And I don't know. I think it's human nature. I don't think it's just a pastoral problem, but I would say it's a problem. That's my perspective. Anyway, I would say that it it's problematic or it can be problematic because then we're not just doing the two mile an hour ministry. Yeah. Where we're just loving the people around us, specifically a wife you like and a couple of girls you like, which is nice. I'm glad you like them. I mean, I have to love them, but I like the fact that I get to like them is cool. And it's a it's a funny spot to sit in, Tim, because I think you're right. Like, 
um, like before I was a teaching pastor, I was a missions pastor. So all I did was send people all over the world. And, and I, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, any more than leading a small church that is kind of purposefully staying small, uh, is better than a big church. Like I love our, the, the mega church in our area. They reach, I always tell, I tell their pastor all the time, you guys, I can send my neighbor to your church long before they'd ever show up at my church. And so there's beauty in, in the different flavors of kind of kingdom roles. Um, right. I always tell people, right. you know, it's, it's all just vanilla, but you like old fashioned vanilla and I like vanilla bean and somebody else likes French vanilla and I, it's all just vanilla. So I found my little niche, but my little niche isn't universal. And I think that's where we screw it all up is we start thinking that the thing that God created me to do is, is the thing he created everyone to do. And so you, you having spoken in 312 countries is, um, See how I named it? I tried to go even higher than I thought it could be. So, well, it, I mean, you went beyond the 200 plus countries in the world to I've been on the moon. <laughs> I've spoken, you know, in, in, um, you know, the little pods there and your live stream from the SpaceX kind of thing. Wasn't that was, incredible? That I, was like, I liked it. Spectacular. It wasn't for me, but I liked, you know, I liked that you liked it. It's, uh, yeah. but that's you, like, God's given you this influence and favor. And if you have influence in those places, I don't care. Like, great. To your point, I think there's a, it's the puffery of it. So, cause I can, mm. I always tell this story. So I used to drive a, um, a red Toyota Yaris hatchback, um, two door manual transmission, manual windows, manual everything. And I, I was like, know, a, I don't even know what that is. A yard, uh, it, yard It's smaller than a Yaris, smaller than a Corolla. Okay. Yaris. Cheaper. Okay. The worst. Um, and so it was the worst car you could own as a professional human being in America, but I, I loved it. Because it was, it was prideful to me. It was so humble that it became a source of pride. So uh, there was a season it needed some work. And my parents had um, a spare Mercedes laying around. And they said, why don't you just drive this, drive your sister's old car for the week while your car gets fixed. And I found myself not wanting to get seen in the Mercedes around town because it blew up my image that I was projecting on the world of this humility and this, oh, look at me. And I was like, well, it, so my stupid humility is just as much pride and puffery as, as somebody saying I've, I've spoken on Mars because mine is attempting to create a false narrative and image to make myself look good. And I know that my countercultural world that I'm operate in, they'll like it even more if I'm, you know, if I'm choosing the humble life and look how, you know, and in the background, I'm just as bubbled up with pride as anybody else. Mine just looks different. So I think we get trapped either way if we're not careful. And that's where, I mean, that's why I love you and authenticity so much is it's going, yeah, man, pride seeps in at every corner. It doesn't, it's not about more or less, you know, you find your lane and run it, but you got to be honest about the lane you're running in and why. Yeah. It's the word just like I'm just a smallish church pastor. I used to be on a, you know, quasi mega church staff, but right now I'm just this. Mm -hmm. I'm just a bivocational pastor as right. if something's wrong with just being a bivocational pastor or a solo pastor of a church of average attendance of 60 people, you know, right. and, um, which is about, you know, just slightly below average. So you're in really good company if that's you listening. Um, but we do, we do take pride in, listen, I, you know, that mega church thing, you know, those, 
mega churches are always trying to get smaller. How many times you heard that in a conversation? Yeah, yeah. You know, we already are small. And so then we get prideful about being small. And, you know, that mega church thing, that's a thing of the past. That's going to be going on. That's going to, you know, finally become extinct. And it's going to be the mid-sized church and this mm -hmm. church. And so I'm right where I need to be. And so we, we can't just be where we are without throwing rocks at something different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is, no, I mean, it's, yeah. it's all self-preservation. Yeah. It's right. ego I mean, and self-preservation. Right. Right. It's the, it's the way my, my attitude the difference in my added, my green room to stage attitude, to use your earlier illustration, it's all self-preservation. In, in the green room, I am who I am, so these people will like me, and it preserves some part of my ego. And then on the stage, I am, or I present who I am, so that the masses will approve, like, follow, whatever, consume me. But both is self-preservation, and I don't know, I mean, this will be too cute, and then it's kind of gross, because too cute gets too sugary, but... I've the, I, I got this compliment from a church member six or eight months ago, and she doesn't know that it was like the greatest thing she ever said. She said, I sense in your preaching lately that you've, get, you've gotten rid of every ounce of self-preservation. And we'd never talked about it. And she's like 65 years old. She's in here once every two weeks. I love her to death. You know, one of those, those safe people that you can just kind of walk with. And um, I was like, we'd never had this conversation. But she saw something, and I... She didn't know. It just, I was like, that's what I'm aiming for. Because I think, and I don't know if this is true, so stream of consciousness, I think self-preservation requires self-devastation. That you have to... Devastation have to kind of, and deprecation. Would you say both? Yeah. You have yeah, to okay. destroy yourself in order to preserve yourself. If, yeah. you're, if you're not living authentically, you have to create a... You have to kill the real you in order to be the you you want people to see. Mm -hmm. And so that was like the... I'm trying to hold on to, I was like, I don't know what I did or how it's going, but whatever was happening that she said that, like, I got to hold on to that. Cause that's what I'm aiming for. It's, you know, hold it all loosely. I don't know. So if she saw a shift, was that shocking to you that she saw a shift? Did you think like, how did you ever see that that was not the real me in the first place? Yeah, that's the that's the bummer. So the the compliment felt good. The bummer was having to recognize that maybe for five years I was I was preserving, you know. So I was in year six of of my time here, and it's kind of a continuum. So I I tell you the story that I I was somebody, and it was kind of mostly me, but I was, you know, fake it till you make it in some way at the old church. And so I, when when I get to change, I get to reinvent or. Um, or be fully who I am. And I got the best advice ever, get fired in the interview, because I asked a friend who was at Mars Hill, uh, RIP Mars Hill, and I said, what do I, how much do I say, what do I hold back? And he goes, dude, just get fired in the interview. Don't move across the country to be somebody, to, to have them find out you're not who you said you were. Yeah, good and advice. I was, I was like, that's fantastic. So I did that, and I was able to show up fully me, I thought, and then six years in, somebody goes, you know what? I feel like you're actually fully you now. So then I have to do the back work of going, well, I wonder how much I was holding back to make sure I was fully acceptable, to make sure I was loved, to make sure I was worthy of, you know, or I was secure. And now that I'm secure and I know that this is the place, okay, now I'll, I'll, now I'll give you the last 10%. It's always that last 10% that gets us. I wonder, though, if that last 10%, if everyone appreciates that or people all of a sudden are deflated or disillusioned, like, oh... I thought Kyle was maybe more here and more spiritual and I don't like seeing the last 10%. Mm -hmm. 
I've gotten more emails in the last nine months since she said it of people saying, we're sorry, we have to leave the church because you said this or you were honest about that. So that happens. Like, that's real. Yeah, I, I'm dealing with an email that I got. I was in Peru a week ago, and um, I got an email who someone who wanted to question something that I had said from the pulpit. And I wrote back to them just on a quick, I said, I'll, I'll meet with you when I get home sometime. Um, it's not a priority for me, to be honest, because, you know, I'm, 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 I'm happy to receive critique. I don't say that like, because people are listening. I, I really am happy to receive critique. I've always been pretty good at receiving critique, not because I don't get defensive. I still get defensive on, yeah. on critique, but I know that after confrontation comes, um, resolution, resurrection, can't have one without the other. But I just said, could you please take what I said in context of what you've heard me say for two years? You know, that you didn't like judge my theology and my personality based upon one soundbite in one 25 minute sermon. Right. But I think that it was off putting. And it's because I was just honest about some doubts. I shared my doubts. Mm -hmm. And, um, I watched a TikTok video this morning. I never watch TikTok. I'm starting to watch TikTok because people I work with said I've got to start doing TikTok, which makes my sphincter slam shut just a little bit because I there's nothing about that I really enjoy. Social media in general, I use it, but I really kind of despise it. And it was the same thing. There was a person out there criticizing a very well-known national pastor because of one thing they had said, and now they weren't just criticizing them, they were taking it to the masses. Mm. And I think that's what we fear. I think that's why we struggle, one of the reasons why we struggle with being our authentic, true self and exposing ourselves or getting naked and vulnerable with people is we fear the backlash of that it can cost us it can cost us a lot everything in some situations yeah you don't want to get blown up and so and as somebody with a microphone in front of him that's every day is a chance for you to get blown up by saying the wrong thing and so you know that's that's the pastoral gauntlet is whether and it, and it applies both ways so at the in the mega church the the fear is about it i got a big audience there are a lot of people that I could say something that they're going to go blow me up on. So I got to be real careful of the masses. So, so then I dumb it all down to make sure I don't step on things. But in a smaller church, I mean, our church, we've three, 400 people, eh, and they're mostly local, and I mostly know them, and we're in a college town of about 30,000. So I see them at the grocery store, and you see, you know, you just, you know everybody. At a smaller church, I was like, well, now I can be me, but yet the risk is is the same or greater, in that if you say the thing that offends the one person, as opposed to in the in the city of three million with the big church where you never see that person again anyway, you say the slightest thing here wrong and that person leaves your church and then you see them once a week at the coffee shop for the rest of your life and you got to deal with with that awkwardness. And so there's always the temptation to pull back and be less of who you've been called to be because there's a risk and that that's a, all of our inauthenticity is fear. And that's okay. Like I am inauthentic because I'm fearful. And I just got to ask myself, am I fearful of um, a truth or a lie? Mm. Like, like I'm fearful of snakes. I'm terrified of snakes. Our, our mutual friend, David Martin has made friends with snakes and I like him a lot less because he's okay with snakes now. 
I grew up in Texas. Snakes bite you. They're poisonous. They're the worst. I'm terrified. I keep moving further north, hoping I can get out of the snake zone. What's that language from Harry Potter? You can speak what? You speak snake. Oh, I don't know. I didn't, I've never seen Harry Potter. Authentically speaking, my kids like it, but I, I don't know anything about yeah, it. Yeah, no, you can speak, you can speak snake or something. I didn't know Martin could speak snake. I'm going to have to talk the, to him about that. He loves them, me. holds them. I'm going to buy him one. He's the best. So I'm terrified of snakes, but I think it's a legit fear. Like I'm, it's a true fear for me because they can truly bite me and kill me. So that's good. I'm also afraid of like a mouse in my basement. And I, my first instinct is to, to recoil and run. And but I'm if like, you well, had a, a snake, but if you had a snake in your basement, <laughs> see, I mean, you're missing the simplicity of the solving the whole problem here. I've thought Just, about, but yeah, but then I'd be afraid of two things. Yeah. Dead mice but, and a, a snake with a fat belly. I just hate, I hate all of it. I'm, but why am I terrified of a mouse? Well, it's a lie. That's just, it's stupid. It's just, it because it says something about me. It says you can't keep your house mouth free. I don't know. Well, so I, I struggle with that because I have all these fears. Well, but most can, of our fears are, but most of our fears are the size of a mouse. They are really small. Yes. And they're not real. We, they're, they're lies. They're, they're right. They're not real. And so we have, we have played them up into our mind until they become this monster instead of a mouse. And it paralyzes us from being who we really want to be. I, I'm, I know that I'm in the minority when it comes to being a pastor who's been at the same church for 27 years. And um, I was part of the team that planted the church. And because of the household, my dad's a pastor, because of the household I grew up in, the mindset of that, in seeing what I thought was, I wouldn't say necessarily duplicitous, I want to throw my dad under the, under the bus, my father pretty much is who he is all the time, but he's always on. He's always a pastor. And um, even in his parenting, he was more of a pastor than than a father. I mean, he'll never listen to this podcast, which is a good thing. He's still alive. And um, But I didn't have to do that because I just said, starting out, I am not going to be a pastor of this church and on staff mm-hmm. of this church and not be who I am. So I've had the privilege of conditioning a church that mm-hmm. I'm going to say some things and do some things. And so you may see me out in public and you may see some behaviors and hear some things that I say that don't sound mm-hmm. pastoral to you, but my church is used to that. And so I can be very transparent um, from the stage behind a microphone. And I really don't shock too many people except guests like yeah. that. I can't believe your pastor said that. Now there are times I cross the line where I come off the stage and my wife, Cindy says, uh, no, no, you, you, you didn't have a filter this morning. Just because you're authentic doesn't mean sometimes you still don't need a filter for your audience. And, um, and and that's, that's a whole nother conversation, but it's, it's true. Authenticity doesn't always mean, I share 100% of everything I'm thinking all the time. But it means I don't lie to tell you what yeah. you want you want to hear. Because then I always have to backpedal if I tell you what I want to hear. There's always damage control because that's where the duplicity comes in. Yeah, then you're, you're walking a false path. I mean, I, I'll create a thousand conflicting metaphors. But would you say, so I'm going to ask you because you're better at this. In, in the 
when you're saying, uh, I don't have to share everything. So I'm like, I got a window here and it's clear, it's transparent. You can see everything in it. I, I installed glass doors in the offices. I was like, transparency, transparency. But I also have shades on the window. So if I need to pull the, but if I need someone not to see everything, um, I got transparency there, but I have a way to cloak it if I need it. Um, Cause I don't need to share everything with everyone all the time. Um, and so that's my, that's the only way I think I get I'm pretty binary in it, but will you explain a little more, I'm interviewing you now, will you explain a little more um, how, how you, I mean, it's, it's a real time intuitive process for you probably, but how do you make the, the delineation between authenticity and, and oversharing or how does that work? Hmm. Dang. Why wouldn't you ask me a question like what I ate for breakfast? Cause that would be easier. I like your illustration of blinds that I can close and I can cloak some things. I work really hard that my public persona and my private persona match. I had this conversation on a previous podcast and um, kind of the same question. And I call it a need to know hmm. issue. And um, I'll probably say this in multiple podcasts because this is my simple answer there are things that I think and believe and behaviors that I um, have in my life that I will keep to myself. Right now, if you listen to my other podcast, square peg round hole, you know that I don't, you know, I don't shade too much. I come right out and say, I'm a coffee snob, bourbon drinker, pipe smoker. And um, I've lost some, you know, listeners who are really conservative and I'm okay with that because I'm not going to tell you that I'm not. Um, and I had to make a real decision there. Do I want to share all this information? And because I'm talking about living with authenticity in an artificial world, whether you're just a person in general or you're in pastoral ministry or whatever your role is in life, I decided that, okay, I can't talk about authenticity, first of all, without being authentic. And number one, number two, without sharing my inauthenticity. Hmm. Because if I don't share my inauthenticity, and then there's no authenticity to my conversation. But what do you need to know? Not what do I want you to know? Because I can take pride there too. Mm -hmm. It's like being prideful of being the mega church or the small church or this particular thing about myself that becomes, I'm no longer humble about, and it becomes my pride, like driving a Yaris, right? Mm -hmm. And so I always have to ask that internal question um, in a conversation um, from a stage what am I trying to communicate? What do people need to know? And when am I oversharing? Hmm. I'm oversharing if it's nothing that affects your life. Like if I'm telling you because I want you to know something about me, right? Because we're all really good about talking about ourselves. I mean, I, I love an audience. I hear that from my wife all the time. You love an audience. I hmm. do love an audience. I'm really not good at chit chat. I'm not good at like when we go out to dinner with another couple, she's got to carry the conversation because I will just talk about myself and my experiences the whole time because uh, it's not in my comfort zone just to sit and talk about, you know, nothing um, or even sometimes to take an interest in you and ask you questions about you. I've got to work really hard about that. So let's just talk about me mm. and when I'm talking about me. If I'm not careful, I'm telling you more than you really care about, you need to know. And 
I will exaggerate or inflate this story just to impress you. Hmm. So I'm aware of all those things about myself and trying to be authentic. And so that's the question I ask myself. That's kind of like, you know, my litmus test. What does this person need to know? Not even want to know. Because sometimes people do want to know, like, where you've been and tell me about the 312 countries and the colony you spoke to on the moon and, you know, your last, you know, broadcast from SpaceX. That's about me. Mm-hmm. So when, when it becomes about me, that's no longer authentic either. So does that make that, that, that kind of answer your question? Totally, totally. And that, and it's illuminating then because, because on the underside of it's about me to go to kind of come full circle on where, where I see most of my inauthenticity coming through, I'll get pegged for being a really good listener and we'll go to dinner with people and I'll just ask questions. I'll fill the whole hour and a half with asking them more questions. And there's an inauthenticity of going, I, I, you, you may open the blinds too high. You may be too transparent in that moment or share too much. And I may keep them too low and refuse to share enough because my defense runs that way. And, okay. and so my, you know, so there's a, but I think that's beautiful because it's like, how much do you need to know? And then how much are you willing to give up of yourself? Maybe for the other side of the people who go, yeah, man, I just don't share a lot. Sometimes because there's not a lot there, but sometimes because it's just safer. And, and when we're trying to be authentic, it's not about, I think what you're trying to say that I, I'm, I'm now like real time applying. It's not about tell me everything all the time forever. It's be fully with me and fully uh, transparent to the level that's appropriate in that moment. And that's, that's like a new skill to learn for me. And I would think for most of us, because we've just been taught to present a manicured image and, and know your audience and then give them what they want. But that's a miserable internal battle for me. Yeah. And that's why, that's why we're, we're doing this authentic pastor deal is because it can't just be me, right? It can't just be me that goes, I am not enjoying this element of the role, but I'm going to suck it up because that's part of the deal. We've created the system. So if we've created it, can't we recreate it? And we can, I'm going to answer my own question. We can, but we've got to count the cost of creation, recreation. Yeah, no, that's it. I mean, it is, it, there's a cost to it and, and it's a, it requires us to reframe our worldview. So we live in a consumptive world, right? And church is as consumeristic as anything else. Um, I need an audience so I can get my book out to more people. Well, if I refuse to be a consumptive, if I refuse to be a consumer product, I'm a, I'm a human being, I'm going to have a relationship with you, then I don't have to measure uh, my relationship with you on how do I get you to buy me. And so the second I stop being something that I want you to consume, um, then I no longer have to worry about whether or not you're going to walk away from the cash register having paid or not paid. I don't care. And if you're not into it, we just won't be friends. But I think we've created a world where, I mean, I'm not blaming, it's not a social media problem. It's not a, it's just humans. We just want people to buy into us at every I level. Do that. I, that's I struggle with that every day, going back to my social media comment where I use social media. And so I'm always thinking like, what do I say today that 
hooks you, right. that will grab your attention, that will drive you to a website or drive you to an online store or, you know, land at my booking page or whatever it might be, or just follow me because I need more followers because I need my eyeballs because more eyeballs are more dollars, right? Right. And yet my sons would say, just put it out there. People just want to know who you are. And if they don't want to know who you are, they'll quit following in the first place. And I, I mean, I would say that, well, they wouldn't have bought the book anyway. Right. So I always go back to that consumptive part of it, which then becomes this internal battle of, am I putting it out there? Because I just want people to know me for the fact that it's okay to be you. So if I can just be me online or on stage mm -hmm. or whatever it might be, then I'm helping you seek or find permission to do the same thing. And I, and I think that's the point of this project. This podcast is people listening here that listen, we're not, we're not, our shades are wide open in this conversation. We're yeah. not cloaking anything. I mean, we're not trying to cloak anything. And if we can do that, you can do that too. Is my hope is the takeaway yeah no that's big and i mean i hope that's the end result mm -hmm. so how do you how are you learning to let go of the opinions of others because you can only let go of the opinions of others if you decide it doesn't matter what they think mm -hmm. does it matter what they think does it not matter what they think do those two ideas go together? I can let go of your opinions because it doesn't matter what you think of me or it doesn't matter what they think of you. I mean, you still have a role and a responsibility in your pastoral life. Yeah, that's where it's, if it's not in relationship, it's worthless. So, so I care about the people who I'm in actual relationship with. I want to know what they think because they're a better reflection of my of my character. I mean, they're, they're, they can tell me things that I'm blinded to. So all my, I got blinders on. I can't see. That's why it's called the blind spot. They can tell me and I need to be able to receive that. So I do care what some people think. The trick is re removing that. I care what everyone thinks or what anyone thinks. I mean, that someone told me this week, eight, we, we now have 8 billion people on earth. That came out yesterday. I heard that too. And I thought, okay, wow, yeah. that's significant. How many of those do I need to like me? Yeah. to die sad you know i do funerals it's my favorite thing it's morose i do funerals i like i love to do funerals it's where i, feel I do most too i really i mean life. not not to take us off but i really do like to do funerals i would and you hear but pastors yeah. say that all the time i'd rather bury than marry right yes. and yes. i think it's because there's a great opportunity it feels so good to care for people in that situation so yeah i'm with you on that keep going it's a reminder every time the biggest funeral you do unless you're burying the queen it's what, 800, 900, a thousand people. I don't, I don't, I'm bad at math, but a thousand out of 8 billion is a pretty small percentage. And so I just keep coming back to like, you, I don't need 8 billion people to like me, much less a million, much less 8,000. Like it isn't about that. I just have to cultivate the, the little spot I'm in and cultivate authentic, real relationships. And if those people, if I do care what they think, I, if my wife tells me there's something that's wrong with me, odds are she's right. Like she's got a front row seat. And so I, I need to, to care about that, but I gotta, I gotta figure out where to put the walls of what do I care about 
they think of me. Because it, it's, for most of us, it's a lot closer in than we have made it because the world is globalized and I can see what somebody in Thailand thinks of my latest tweet. It doesn't matter. If my wife thinks my tweet is bad and I should take it down, I'm going to listen. If Thailand thinks it, you know what? Unfollow. Yeah. Okay, I did, I did this just two days ago. I was looking at one of my latest social media posts and I started counting the people in different countries who liked it. Mm-hmm. And I immediately thought, oh, you know, wow, I'm really influencing the world. One person in Malaysia is not influenced. But for a moment there, my head swelled just a little bit because one Malaysian person, that's not influence. So why do I care so much? Mm-hmm. You know, that's a dude, that's a dude in Poughkeepsie with a, with a VPN going through Malaysia. That's not, he's, that's some guy in his basement in Buffalo. That's all or it might just, it, it's probably a bot. It's not even a real person going through Malaysia. It's just, it's just a bot. So listen, I've got, I've got an amazing group of bot followers. I'm so proud I mean, of myself. Who doesn't want this? I've, I, I, I haven't had Twitter in a couple of years. I haven't had Instagram in a, a bit. Um, I remember wanting to buy Twitter followers. Tim. I wanted them because I had crested it 2,500 or 3,000 or wherever I couldn't get above. I was like, oh, that's my limit. That's all the influence I'll ever have on this, this worthless whatever. And I remember thinking, it is pretty tempting. 5000 for 10 bucks. I mean, that's pretty. And, and it's just in us. And that's, I think it's wired in us. It's like we were created to I can't desire believe, that. I can't believe you've ever had that thought. I mean, because I've never had that thought. Because um, <laughs> I actually spent like a couple hundred bucks on Instagram followers. And, um, and another pastor told me to. Hey, that's going to give you more eyeballs, which is going to give you more organic growth. Killed my entire, you know, influence, whatever the algorithm garbage is. And so about six, eight months ago, I had to hire somebody probably from Malaysia and um, to go through my account and get rid of like 9,000 illegitimate followers. That's wild. And so I look now at my Twitter account and go, man, I used to have 10,000, 11,000 followers. And now I'm down to like, you know, 2000 and I might gain one a month. And I'm like, but I felt better about myself when Mm -hmm. I had all these fake followers, this fake applause, these, and I'm going to make a jump here. People who see the false me, because I can tell you anything on a stage or in a book that I want you to hear to get you go, oh, you know, that was so good. And he is so, he's almost, I mean, next to Jesus, he might be the fourth person of the Trinity, you know, mm-hmm. which wouldn't even work for in Trinity, but they, they, and so I've, I, I've hoodwinked you. Yeah. I've hoodwinked you to feel good about me as a pastor trying to lead you to be your own authentic self in Christ. There's a disconnect there. And I know that's not me. I think that is, I think that's all of us. And again, that's not throwing, that's not throwing people under the bus. That's not, that's not trying to beat up pastors. It's just being, come on. That's how, this is not who we want to be. This is not who Jesus called us to be. That's not who you are. So you're right. You hoodwink them and who you're ultimately lying to is you. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And that's, that's, that's where. So we, now I've got to tell another lie. 
So I've, yes. now I've got to tell another lie to keep you hoodwinked or not. You're going to be completely disillusioned. I mean, if I write something in a blog, I've got to be really careful that I'm not just exaggerating a point to get you to really think like that was, that was not the story. That was all hyperbole. Right. Right. No, it's so I, I wrote a, I have a, I wrote a book. Um, I compiled a bunch of stories for my, my missionary time. And they were all my stories. They're all personal stories. I had to cut some that were too personal that had names that I couldn't share health issues. And so a lot of, a lot of stuff I had to cut because it, they weren't mine to tell. The most popular story, somebody I was at lunch with somebody yesterday, they're like, I just always think about that with you. Isn't mine. There was a, a missionary that was there before me and he mistakenly drank breast milk at a at this woman's house. She didn't have any cream. He wanted cream in her in his coffee and he, he gave her breast milk. Or she gave him breast milk in his coffee. He didn't see it. He drank it. He got told about it later. It was a whole uh, shenanigans. Well, I liked that story so much that I told it in my book and I purposely obfuscated. I said, uh, you know, I'm Kyle. And I said, but this isn't about me. This is actually the one story that's not about me. And then, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty proud of it because it was it worked so well. But it still is, in a sense, this, this weird double-sided lie. And I said, we'll call him Lyle to protect his identity. And then over and over throughout this story, I say, this is, remember, this is, didn't happen to me. It's not about me. And I say it so much that it, clearly the joke is, this is me and I'm embarrassed. Except that I still, years later, have people coming up to me and going, are you going to get cream in that coffee? And I'm going, I have a lot, like, now I have to tell everybody that tells me this, that repeats this. I have to say, that actually wasn't me. So let me explain to you how this works. I'm, it was funny, and that's why it's in there. But I met the guy. It's not. And then they look at me like, can I trust you? And that's really what their, their look is like. You pulled one out. Can I trust you? And I have to go, I, I don't know. I mean, I think so. But it's a weird, I mean, it's the best part of the whole book. It's the most quotable thing. It's the thing people remember the most. And it's the one thing that wasn't mine. And I did it in such a way that I don't regret it. But to see it in real time of people going, oh, if that isn't you, then what do I believe that else that isn't true? And I go, oh, good question. Well, that's a lesson. Because I know the story. You've told the story, you know, sitting around a campfire. And, um, but that's an aspect of it I've never really considered the ramifications of, of that. It's a hoodwink. You said it. I winked. I winked as I told the story, trying to say, look, it, it isn't about me, but maybe it is. Because it was a good enough thing that I wanted to ascribe it to. I mean, I just didn't have a story that good. So I stole it and used it. And now I got to deal with it. So really, you're a used car salesman. Yeah. I mean, that's not to be um, indicting, but that's how a lot of people view clergy. Mm -hmm. You know, we're selling you something. Quite often, we're selling you fear. Right. But again, if we sell you fear and justify it biblically, um, we're achieving something, numbers, growth, salvations, baptisms, all as a way of inflating um, our insecurity. What's the difference between buying a Twitter follower and lying to a, a seeker to get them across the salvation line? Both, both are the same, you know, I think both have the exact same authenticity when it comes to their experience with you and you get the same benefit from each, which is nothing. 
you're lying to yourself if you think that my tricking someone into a false faith is any better than than uh, buying a bot from Russia to follow me on Instagram. But haven't we, or have we, have we learned to justify our behaviors so much mm-hmm. that it's become ingrained and it's our false identity. It's our false identity because, well, let me ask it this way. Are we so, do we lack so much confidence in who we are that we're happy to justify the lie? The ends justify the means, right? Which is what we've, that's the lie we bought into. If, and so, so let me be uh, evangelical for a minute. If we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and if in him there is a, an ultimate victory, then, then the ends is done. All he cares about is the means, or in modern language, it's process and result. If the result is Jesus is the king of the universe who's come to set the people free, then all he cares about is the process, because I can't change the, the result. He's, he's done. He wins. And so then he doesn't need me to add to the result. It's over. The game is over. Why are we still on the field playing? We're playing for the fun of it. We're playing because he lets us. Um, he says, participate in this thing I've created for you. Grab joy and find fullness. And we're so busy trying to win the game. And he's like, guys, it's a scrimmage. I've already, I already won. And we're so busy in that. We lose process and we lose the people involved because we're so focused on the, the end result and building our own little kingdoms. And we're building our own little kingdom and we're um, participating so much in the process. Number one, maybe because we don't believe that right. the game's already over, right? right. The victory is right. already assured. And number two, perhaps we are so uh, uncomfortable with who we are that we're trying to prove something, mm-hmm. which I guess might go to the idea, stretches just a little bit, that we're trying we're we're playing Jesus when he didn't tell us to do that i mean we take the idea of going to the all world and reach everybody cuz i can't mm-hmm. I mean i can't he already has mm-hmm. right we're just a conduit of love in that um i w- i had a thought a minute ago in the idea of justification is here here's the here's the sticking point we're actually giving something to people they want go all the way back to the garden we prefer the lie we really prefer to be lied to so i don't want to know the real you so tell me what i want to hear make me feel good and make me feel good about the person telling me and so it becomes really easy to go, it's okay because it's what people want to hear. You know, we're not politicians, we're pastors for God's sake. Mm-hmm. And so we have to, maybe that's part of our responsibility here. We have to help people understand mm-hmm. that God hates lies. And so the very flaw from the very beginning of preferring the lie. Did God really say, huh? And so 
we gravitate towards just tell me what I want to hear. Give me that knowledge. Give me that insight. And so I don't think it's a a circular, never-ending cycle that we can't break. I think we have to break it. And if anyone's going to break it, should it not be us setting the setting the pace for that change? I mean, people, I, I mean, it's all we can do. And, but we have to believe, we have to believe it's true. And I think that's where you're, that's the, the heart of the authentic pastor is, is having the authentic belief that I'm not the savior of the world and that, that I'm, I'm never going to be. And only then can I start telling so the couple who comes into my office with the marriage issue or the, you know, if I think I can save their marriage, can we start off on a lie and it never goes the right direction? If I think that my sermon's going to save this city, we start off with a lie. And and to your point, I just I'm all I'm a conduit. And the second I think I'm I'm a, a power generation, you know, I'm not the power plant, I'm the conduit. And when we and get you it don't recognize up, if if you don't recognize you're a conduit, then you become a counterfeit. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you got to lie to everybody. Um, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. And it, that's where, and we fall flat and then we end up having a crisis of our own faith going, I don't know what it's all about. It's because we've convinced ourselves that it was about us all the time. And yet our faith is going to collapse when our faith is in us. And I think that's where the growing disillusion is coming in pastors where they're saying, I can't do this anymore. And it's not because, you know, some of the statistics are out now going, I just can't deal with the ramifications and the results of the the Mm -hmm. COVID crisis and the political upheaval and the the division between, you know, people's, you know, political points of view and moral view and worldview. I think that's an excuse. Mm -hmm. That may be what the surface looks like, but beneath the surface, my opinion is that it really is deeper than that, where mm-hmm. I don't want to be this person anymore. I don't right. want to lie to people and I don't want to lie to myself, but they don't feel like they can make that change. And so they just, instead of tackling that thing head on, they just find an exit strategy. And I don't it's think that, exit yeah. is, I don't think exit strategy is the answer. Right. It's not going to change not, anything because they're just going to replace you with another counterfeit. And you're going to go be an that, insurance salesman that's a counterfeit all the same. Oh, yeah. It's the same. You're just going to carry the. It's like someone who says, well, I you know, I was married twice and I got divorced a third time, too. It's because you carried the same garbage into the relationship. Mm-hmm. You didn't fix you. Mm-hmm. And I know that, you know, there can be people listening who goes, man, you guys sound like you're really down. We're not. We're not down mm-hmm. on, on pastors. We are pastors. We just know it can be different and not because we've got it figured out. You and I don't have it figured out, but we're figuring out, we're wrestling through it. That's why we're conversing about it. That's why there's not going to be like, and so therefore here's your three points at the end of this podcast, you know, with a cute little story and a conclusion and please walk the aisle of authenticity. You want my, you don't want my, I got three points. I just, I was ready to just right now. I was going to Yeah, go ahead and give them, but you know, the producer will cut them out. So it's fine. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> Hope you didn't prep to too say. much for those. You know, I got to find some papers to shuffle around. No, you're right. I've got it, all kinds all of that. stuff from the book of third Timothy. I could give yeah. you right now. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I had a name that was in the Bible. The um, book of Kyle. Yeah. Well, we'll make that one up later. It's a book of Lyle. It wasn't really about me. Mm. Um, 
the inauthentic pastor, the inauthentic person is a bridge. We're all a bridge. And we're, we're poorly, we have poor foundations. We're broken in all the places. We've experienced traumas and trials and where our screws are loose and the boards are, you know, whatever. Think of the old covered bridge. We say this in marriage for, for young couples. Hey, you're a bridge. Um, it's cool to be all broken and, and, and weathered and worn. And what pastors are experiencing is we are broken and weathered and worn. And then the weight of things hit us, the weight of COVID or the weight of whatever. And now, now we're struggling under the weight of that. We're like, I don't want to do this anymore. But the thing is, it, you're not, a, you're not, your identity is not pastor. Your identity is person. And if you've been inauthentic and now the weight of, I told these people for years, I was going to save them. And the weight of this is too much. I don't know how to get myself through this. Well, now we're screwed. But to your point, I can go do anything else on earth and I still got this hard wiring that says that I'm in charge and it's about me. And, and so we're, we're really hosed if we aren't getting serious about being who we truly are and rooted in who we truly say we're about. Because short of that, um, we're going to keep repeating the same mistake. It doesn't matter what your title is. But once we find it, once we find authenticity and we really are who we are, then the people around us, this shocks, I mean, this shocked me going through it years ago. And it continues to shock people I talk to. If you're just who you really are, you find out that the people around you appreciate it so much more. And, and the know, joy of your community is so much greater because they're not waiting for you to fail because you're failing every day in front of them. And that's such a freedom. It is freedom. That's what we're offering in this project is freedom. The, uh, my wife has been saying lately, she hadn't said it for 32 years. She's only said it lately that you're the best version of yourself you've ever been in our marriage. Mm -hmm which is really quite embarrassing. Right. But I can respond to her by saying the person I see in the mirror is the person I want to be. Hmm. I can't say that's always been the case. And so I guess that's what I want to ask people who are listening as we wrap up. That's kind of a litmus test. Is the person you see when you look in the mirror, the person you want to be? And if you can't say it is, then it's time for some real introspection. Amen. So um, that's why I like you, Kyle. It's because I think the person that you portray is the person that you see in the mirror. I'm not saying you're perfect. For goodness sake, you don't even have a book in the Bible with your name on it. You know, I'll get there. I'll get and there. You drink, and you drink breast milk. Or maybe oh, well, I'll drink breast milk. Or somebody did. I crossed the line one way or the other. <laughs> oh, this conversation could go on and there will be others. But you've given me um, lower, slower, lesser. What's my fourth one? That fourth thing. You gotta stick smaller in there somewhere. So lower and smaller. Smaller, smaller, slower, lesser, lower. Yeah. That's a challenge enough. Yeah. And I think when we can do that, that helps us to be happy with the person we look at when we see our reflection. And I think that helps us especially to see Christ reflected in us as well, because that was mm -hmm. uh, as you indicated, um, a really good ethos of the example of ministry that he set for us. Yeah. Dude, May can't come quick enough. And um, I always say I should drive like three and a half hours or three hours or whatever it is to Bowling Green. And um, I'd like to tell you that I probably will, but that'd be inauthentic because I won't get there anytime soon, I'm sure. But thanks for the time. 
I know you're busy. I really appreciate it. If you want to know more and um, continue to grow with us, uh, please check out theauthenticpastor.com. Pastor Burkholder, have a good day, my friend. Thanks, Tim. Love you. Love you, buddy.